Today on episode 18 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we are going to dive deep into anti-slap motions in federal court. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 18th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. And be sure to show some love for my sponsor, BenchReporter.com. I use this service more and more. It gives you the ability to search for prior tentative rulings from any judge on any type of motion, and it provides a sneak preview of the judge's thought process on those motions. So go to BenchReporter.com and be sure to use the coupon code TOPLAWFIRM for a discount. That's TOPLAWFIRM. The past couple of weeks at Morrison Stone, we've prevailed on a couple of motions that beautifully illustrate some important legal concepts, so I thought we'd cover those today. The first one actually involves an anti-slap motion we decided not to bring, so here's the facts. I always like to change the facts slightly to protect the privacy of my clients, so let's make my client a real estate office. My client, let's call it Century 25, had a real estate office in an office building, and in that same building was another real estate office who we'll call Remix. The competition between Century 25 and Remix was intense to the point that when my client, Century 25, would run promotions, Remax would actually put people in the lobby of the building to grab potential clients as they would come in, telling them false, bad things about Century 25. Uh, There was also reason to believe that people from Remax were vandalizing Century 25 signs. So Century 25 complained to the building manager, and ultimately, when Remax's lease came up for renewal, the building refused to permit Remax to renew its lease. Now, for reasons not important to the story, This particular building is a really good place to have a real estate office, so Remix was not at all happy with this turn of events. So Remix sued Century 25 and the principals of Century 25 and the owner of the building as well as the management company. We represented only Century 25 and its principals. Now, it is very often the case that we are hired to take over a case when a client grows frustrated that their attorney won't bring what the client perceives to be an appropriate anti-slap motion. Clients are getting more and more sophisticated about these motions, and they they don't like it if the attorney can't explain why they're not bringing one of these motions. Well, that's exactly what happened here, but with a little twist. In this case, the attorneys representing the management company and the building owner decided the case was ripe for an anti-slap motion. They had already filed their anti-slap motion, and our clients were frustrated that their attorney was not following suit. So they came to us and asked if we would take over the case in order to file an anti-slap motion. Now, as I said to you before, just as a hammer sees everything as a nail, since anti-slap motions are kind of my thing, I often see them where no other attorney does. However, in this case, after reviewing the court documents, I reported back to the clients that their current attorney was correct in not pursuing an anti-slap motion. I told the clients that the case just wasn't ripe for an anti-slap motion and that they would actually be better served with a demur in order to get the case to a point where an anti-slap motion would be far more likely to succeed. If you go to episode 12, I discuss how you use a demur as a means to tighten up a complaint so that it is more susceptible to an anti-slap motion. 
But even though I told the clients that their current attorney was doing the right thing, they apparently felt more comfortable with our firm and brought us in to take over the case. I went ahead and filed our demur, but as you can imagine, I was a little bit concerned that if the anti-slap motion brought by the other attorney was granted, I was going to look bad for not bringing one as well. Now let's back up for a moment and take a look at the claims of Remix and why the other defendants thought they had a basis for an anti-slap motion. The theory of liability by Remix was that my clients had allegedly reported false information to the management company who had then communicated that information to the building owners. Remix was suing my clients for defamation and interference with business, making the same claims against the management company for republishing the allegedly false statements, and had some theory against the building owner involving interference with prospective economic advantage. The reason I didn't think the case was yet ripe for an anti-slap motion is that the allegations were very nonspecific as to what my clients had supposedly said. Also because of the size of the controversy, this was a dispute between just a few individuals. Now, in one sense, my clients had the strongest basis for an anti-slap motion because reporting problems to the building management with a tenant would be a normal process involved in the right of redress. In other words, before suing Remix, my clients would first logically pursue a complaint with the building management. But, but as to the management company and the building ownership, can you see the immediate problem with their anti-slap motion? You cannot ignore the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. Under section 425.16E4, there must be a public issue or an issue of public interest. In a case called Weinberg versus Faisal, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, it's a 2003 case, the Court of Appeal explained the general parameters of this concept. They said, first, public interest does not equate with mere curiosity. Second, a matter of public interest should be something of concern to a substantial number of people. Thus, a matter of concern to the speaker and a relatively small, specific audience is not a matter of public interest. Third, there should be some degree of closeness between the challenged statements and the asserted public interest. The assertion of a broad and amorphous public interest is not sufficient. And fourth, the focus of the speaker's conduct should be the public interest rather than a mere effort to gather ammunition for another round of private controversy. Now, the trial court concluded that the anti-slap motion by the management company and the building owners did not even satisfy the first prong of the anti-slap analysis because the alleged defamatory communication involved only a small, specific audience with a private controversy within the meaning of Weinberg. On that basis, the motion was denied and my reputation as the anti-slap guru remained intact in the eyes of these clients. Thank you, Mr. Know-it-all! Even better, having just survived an anti-slap motion and facing my demur, Remix decided it had enough and dismissed the case. Another satisfied customer. So the takeaway from this case is don't give short shrift to the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. I was recently in touch with an attorney from Northern California who brought an anti-slap motion that also did not satisfy the first prong, according to the judge. The judge turned around and awarded attorney fees to the other side, concluding that since the motion did not even satisfy the first prong of the analysis, it was frivolous. Now, I didn't agree with the judge at all, but there you have it. Be sure you can make a strong argument for the first prong. Now let's turn to the second case. This was an anti-slap motion I brought in federal court that I actually lost. Okay, the motion was granted, so I didn't actually lose, but I didn't win on one of the causes of action. When I bring an anti-slap motion in federal court, I always feel like I'm cramming a square peg into a round hole. So today, let's see if we can make that peg fit a little better for you with a deep dive into the history and application of anti-slap motions in federal court. Let's begin by taking you back to law school when you studied the United States Supreme Court case of Erie Railroad Company versus Tompkins, 
which was decided in 1938. Like me, until I refreshed my memory in preparation for this podcast, you've probably forgotten the details of this very important case. Tompkins was suing for personal injuries he'd sustained due to the negligence of the railroad company. Uh, Tompkins brought the case in federal court in Pennsylvania. What happened was Tompkins was injured by a passing train when a door or something extending from the train hit him while he was walking along a path that was technically uh, trespassing on railroad property. The railroad argued that since Tompkins was a trespasser on railroad property, the applicable duty under Pennsylvania law was only to refrain from willful or wanton injury. In other words, under general principles of law, if Tompkins had been standing along the track in a public area and was hit by the door, that would be a pretty straightforward case of negligence. But since he was trespassing, then the railroad was only liable if the injury was willful or wanton. At that time, the federal courts were following a rule created by the case of Swift v. Tyson. Swift v. Tyson had held that federal courts exercising jurisdiction on the ground of diversity of citizenship need not, in matters of general jurisprudence, that's the term they use, general jurisprudence, apply the unwritten law of the state as declared by, by its highest court, that they are free to exercise an independent judgment as to what the common law of the state is or should be. That's incredible, but that was the, that was the holding of Swift v. Tyson. It's pretty amazing when you look back on the law with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. So the the railroad had pointed to the Federal Judiciary Act of September 24, 1789. Note that date, 1789. Our Constitution was ratified in 1788, and the following year the law was passed that created the Federal Judiciary. The Federal Judiciary Act provides, quote, The laws of the several states, except where the Constitution, treaties, or statutes of the United States otherwise require or provide, shall be regarded as rules of decision in trials at common law in the courts of the United States in cases where they apply. Now, we, as of today, certainly recognize that decisional law defines our law. But in 1842, Swift v. Tyson had come along and carved out this exception, ruling that decisional law means nothing. In federal court, the judge could disregard the laws of the state created by decades of decisional law and substitute its own judgment on what the law should be. And that's what the judge did in Tompkins. Following Swift v. Tyson, the judge ruled that regardless of the findings of the Pennsylvania courts, the issue of duty was a matter of general law and had to be determined under federal law. The judge rejected Pennsylvania's law as to trespassers and used a general negligence standard instead. So based on that instruction to the jury, the jury found in favor of Tompkins and awarded him $30,000, which I guess was a lot back then. The Court of Appeal agreed and the matter was appealed to the Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court took the opportunity of this relatively small personal injury case to reject the holding of Swift v. Tyson. The court discussed how Swift v. Tyson had created a forum-shopping monster. The court cited to the example of one company in Kentucky, which upon realizing that Kentucky law would not support what this company wanted to accomplish, simply formed a corporation in Tennessee and then sued in diversity in Kentucky federal court in order to avoid state laws. Under Swift v. Tyson, non-citizens of a state actually had greater rights than citizens. The citizens were bound by the decisional law, while outsiders were not. So, in Erie Railroad Company v. Tompkins, the Supreme Court held, quote, Except in matters governed by the federal constitution or by acts of Congress, the law to be applied in any case is the law of the state. And whether the law of the state shall be declared by its legislature, in a statute, or by its highest court in a decision is not a matter of federal concern. There is no federal general common law. 
The court held that under Pennsylvania decisional law, since Tompkins was trespassing, the railroad owed duty only to refrain from willful or wanton injury and reverse the decision on that basis. By the way, you should take the time to read the dissenting opinion of Justice Pierce Butler. It's actually a little bit scary when you read it to realize the arrogance of the federal judiciary at that time. He basically argued that the federal court should not be controlled by the reasoning of any state court decision. He stated that state courts, in interpreting the state's own laws, cannot furnish positive rules or conclusory authority by which our own judgments are to be bound and governed. So states, you're not really free to pass your own laws. We're going to decide what your laws should be. So by now, you're probably asking, well, what does this constitutional law lesson have to do with anti-slap motions? Well, in 1999, in a Tom case called United States Newsham versus Lockheed Missile and Space Company, the court was confronted with a case where a defendant had filed an anti-slap motion in federal court. The district court had granted the defendant's motion to dismiss, but denied the anti-slap motion on the grounds that certain federal rules of civil procedure directly conflicted, and those are the buzzwords, directly conflicted with the anti-slap statute, namely Rule 8, requiring specificity in pleadings, Rule 12F, which is a motion to strike, Rule 12B6, which is a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, and Rule 56, motions for summary judgment. The court basically said, hey, we have our own rules. You know, you don't, get, don't be coming in here with your state rule about how to get rid of a case. We already have procedures to get rid of a case. In essence, the district court ruled that since the federal rules already provide a means to challenge meritless cases, we don't need no stinking anti-slap statute. That was exactly what they said. No, I actually made that up. But as the defendant pointed out, that's all fine and good, but your rules don't provide for the award of attorney's fees. Yeah, this is back, we're still talking about the case of Newsham versus Lockheed Missiles and Space Company. So they said, that's great that you granted the motion to dismiss, but we wanted attorney's fees and we can only get attorney's fees by way of the anti-slap motion. So they took it up to the Ninth Circuit of Appeal and it ruled that California's anti-slap motion did not conflict with federal rules. This is a quote. We fail to see how the proper application of the anti-slap provisions will directly interfere with the operations of Rule 8, 12, or 56. In summary, there is no direct collision here. In the absence of a direct collision between a state enactment and the federal rules, we must make the typical, relatively unguided, eerie choice. We conclude that the twin purposes of the eerie rule, discouragement of forum shopping and avoidance of inequitable administration of the law, favor application of California's anti-SAP law in federal cases. The Ninth Circuit remanded to the district court to rule on the anti-SAP motion and whether the defendant should recover attorney's fees. So, almost... Immediately after passage of the anti-slap statute by California's legislature, we had a ruling in the Ninth Circuit that California's anti-slap statute did not collide with any federal procedural rule. It held that California's anti-slap statute can happily coexist with federal rules 8, 12, and 56. As the Ninth Circuit stated, although rules 12 and 56 allow a litigant to test the opponent's claims before trial, California's special motion to strike adds an additional unique weapon to the pretrial arsenal, a weapon whose sting is enhanced by entitlement to fees and costs. Plainly, if the anti-slap provisions are held not to apply in federal court, a litigant interested in bringing meritless slap claims would have a significant incentive to shop for a federal forum. That's actually pretty brilliant. It, the, the court recognized that if you take away that bow from the quiver, arrow from the quiver is the proper way to say that. If you take away that arrow from the quiver, people are going to be going to federal court just to avoid the specter of having to pay attorney's fees. And that's the way it's been since 1999. But there are still judges and justices who feel that California's anti-slap statute should not be used in federal court. 
I've discussed the case of McKayev versus Trump University here before, and that case is now getting a lot of attention in the presidential race because McKayev sued Trump, claiming the courses his university offered were useless. In that case, Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski expressed his displeasure with anti-slap motions in federal court. As he put it, the California anti-slap statute cuts an ugly gash through the federal court's orderly process designed to extricate certain defendants from the spider web of litigation It enables them to test the factual sufficiency of a plaintiff's case prior to any discovery. It changes the standard for surviving summary judgment by requiring a plaintiff to show a reasonable probability that he will prevail merely rather than merely a triable issue of fact. It authorizes attorney's fees against a plaintiff who loses the special motion by a standard far different from that applicable under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11. And it gives a defendant who loses the motion to strike the right to an interlocutory appeal in clear contravention of Supreme Court admonitions that such appeals are not to be entertained, but only very sparingly because they are so disruptive of the litigation process. So even now, when we, we are, we're in the process of discussing passing a federal anti-slap statute, there are still those who don't want the option of anti-slap motions in federal court. But anyway, Judge Kaczynski's way did not take the day, so all is good with the world. You can use anti-slap motions in federal court, right? Well, yes and no. Remember my square peg in the round hole comment? You can bring an anti-slap motion in federal court, but it's a very different beast than what you pursue in state court. First, if you're using an anti-slap motion to challenge the sufficiency of plaintiff's complaint, then, well, that sounds like a Rule 12b or 12c motion to dismiss, and the court is going to apply the federal standards. And here's the key point. The federal standard permits leave to amend on a motion to dismiss. In the 2004 case of Verizon Delaware Inc. versus Covad Communications, the Ninth Circuit held that granting a motion to strike plaintiff's initial complaint without leave to amend would directly collide with Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 15A favoring liberal amendment. So in federal courts, you can bring a successful anti-slap motion only to then have the court grant leave to amend. But it's not really a waste of time, not, not at least as much of a waste of time as it may first appear to be. I kind of think of it as a a demur in state court. Just as with a demur in state court, sometimes you have to demur two or three times before the court will finally sustain without leave. So, for example, if you bring an anti-slap motion based on the litigation privilege, even if the federal court grants leave to amend, there's, there's probably no way the plaintiff will be able to amend around that privilege. So it still accomplishes the same purpose, even though in federal court they can grant leave to amend. Next, if the anti-slap motion you bring in federal court challenges the proof that plaintiff can proffer, then it will be treated like a motion for summary judgment under Rule 56. In federal court, there is no stay on discovery. That kind of rips the heart out of the anti-slap statute when you think about it, because the stay on discovery is one of the main means by which the statute prevents a plaintiff from harassing the defendant. But in federal court, the stay on discovery is deemed to directly collide with federal rules, so the plaintiff can continue with discovery after an anti-slap motion is filed. But here's the single most important thing to know about anti-slap motions in federal court. Everything we've just been discussing involves diversity jurisdiction. If you're defending against a complaint in federal court based on diversity jurisdiction, then California's laws apply, including the right to an anti-slap motion. But you cannot bring an anti-slap motion in federal court to challenge federal claims. Obviously, if the matter is a federal claim, then federal law applies. And since there's no federal anti-slap statute, at the time of this podcast at least, you can't pursue an anti-slap motion in federal court against federal claims. 
but what if the plaintiff sues your client alleging both federal and state claims? Well, then you're again free to bring an anti-slap motion, but only against the state claims. That is the situation I was confronted with in the case we're going to discuss now. This is a great case to discuss because it has interesting federal aspects as well as a discussion of the litigation privilege. Again, to protect the privacy of my client, I'm going to change the facts a little. Let's make the plaintiff a tenant in my client's apartment building. And let's say the tenant stuck an air conditioner in the window of her bedroom and put up a really ugly piece of plywood. You know, when you stick a air conditioner in a window, you got to cover up the rest of it some way. So there's this air conditioner and a really ugly piece of uh, plywood. Well, not only is the AC unit and plywood really ugly, the neighbors are complaining about the noise. So my client, the landlord, responded with a three-day notice telling the tenant to get rid of the dang AC unit out of the window or face eviction. So the client responds by saying she has a disability that is aggravated by heat and she needs the accommodation of the AC unit. My client says, no problem, just just give me a doctor's note. And that's legal, by the way. A landlord is not required to accept on faith that a tenant is disabled and needs accommodation. A landlord can require a doctor's note. It's kind of a fine line. You can't get too deep into it. You can't ask for the uh, nature of the disability and make your own determination about whether the tenant really needs an air conditioner. But if you get a note, you, you can ask for a note from a doctor saying, yeah, she, she has some condition that requires her to uh, have a nice cool room because of her condition. So um, my client asked for a note from the doctor. So while my client is waiting for the doctor's note, the tenant installs a second AC unit in the kitchen window, every bit as ugly as the first. Then the tenant finally gets around to providing a note from the doctor stating that the AC unit in the bedroom window is necessary, but the note says nothing about the newly installed kitchen unit. So my client issues another three-day notice regarding that unit, but explains right there in the three-day notice if the tenant gets a note from the doctor for that unit, for that AC unit, there will be no problem. My client was just trying to protect himself as to the other tenants who were complaining about the noise and these ugly air conditioning units. So the tenant eventually gets around to providing a note from a doctor specifying that the AC units in the kitchen and the bedroom are necessary. But then the tenant puts an AC unit in the living room window. So the process of the three-day notice repeats itself one more time. All my client ever does is to issue three different three-day notices as each AC unit is installed. And on all three occasions, the tenant provided, uh, eventually provided a note from the doctor stating that these AC units were necessary. So my client never took any steps towards eviction, never instituted an unlawful detainer action. The only thing my client ever did was issue these three-day notices. Well, then the plaintiff turns around and sues my client and his attorney in federal court, claiming that the three-day notices made her cry. So here's where the fun begins. There are three causes of action in the complaint. The first is for failure to accommodate under the Federal Fair Housing Act. The tenant claimed that by serving her with the three-day notices, my client was discriminating against her on the basis of her disability. A disability, by the way, my client knew nothing about, beyond the fact that the doctor now says she needs to stay cool. The second cause of action is under the same theory, but this one was brought under California's Fair Employment and Housing Act. Finally, the third cause of action was against only the attorney for violation of the right of privacy set forth in California's Constitution. The tenant claimed that when my client's attorney, before I was ever brought in for the anti-slap motion, contacted her doctor to ask about the AC units, that was a violation of her right of privacy. Those are the claims I was responding to with my anti-slap motion, so let's go through them. As a beginning point, it needs to be noted that this was not a diversity action. Both the plaintiff and the defendant reside in California. But in any event, the first cause of action for violation is for a federal claim brought in federal court, so the anti-slap process is unavailable for that claim. Set it to the side, never speak of it again. But 
even though this is not a diversity case, you can use the anti-slap motion against the pendent state claims that are joined in the federal question case. So, oh, by the way, that was the holding from the 1999 case of Globetrotter Software, Inc. versus Elan Computer Group. So, I can use my magical anti-slap powers against the second and third cause of action in this federal case. The first is under, well, actually, the second cause of action is under California's Fair Employment and Housing Act, and the third cause of action is under California's Constitution. Now let's talk about the first claim for violation of the Fair Employment and Housing Act. Here's the deal. The tenant was claiming that by sending the three-day notices, we were violating the Fair Employment and Housing Act. We were discriminating against her on the basis of her disability. But my client had to serve those three-day notices as the normal first step in an eviction process. So isn't that covered by the absolute litigation privilege? Well, that's the argument I made, and here's why the court disagreed. Imagine for a minute that there is an actual discrimination case between a landlord and a tenant. There's a person who really hates, let's say, Mesopotamians, and he buys an apartment complex where Mesopotamians live, and he really wants to get those Mesopotamians out. So he makes up a noise complaint and serves a three-day notice followed by an unlawful detainer action. Under this sort of scenario, discrimination in housing is always going to involve the act of issuing three-day notices followed by an unlawful detainer action. If the courts conclude that those are protected under the litigation privilege and that a plaintiff cannot point to those activities as proof of the discrimination, then landlords would always be free to use this process to discriminate. The, the key, therefore, is the gravamen of the complaint. If the point of the complaint is the failure to accommodate, then the anti-slap motion should be denied even though it complains of the protected activities. Now, there's a number of cases coming down on both sides depending on the claimed acts. I felt and I still do that this one was all about the protected activity. All of the cases where the uh, courts have found that the gravamen of the complaint was the discrimination, they all involved unlawful detainer actions. And that's an important distinction. You can't really argue that a landlord failed to accommodate if the landlord asked only for proof of the disability and never sought to evict you. Further, the tenant alleged only that the three-day notices made her cry. That's my shorthand way of saying that, that that's what caused the emotional distress. So in her complaint, she alleged on November 5th, landlord served me with a three-day notice and that made me cry and that was a failure to accommodate. On December 3rd, landlord served me with a three-day notice and that that made me cry, and that was a failure to accommodate, etc. Thus, every claim of injury arose from the protected conduct of serving the necessary three-day notices. Now, the court threw me a bone and acknowledged that all the complaints certainly appeared to arise from the three-day notices, but said that was a matter for another day. That left the claim against the attorney for contacting the tenant's doctors. Here, the court agreed that the telephone calls were protected under the litigation privilege. The attorney was calling the doctors seeking clarification of the notes they had provided. It was clear that one doctor was saying the AC unit in the bedroom was necessary, for example, but no one was explaining why the other AC units were needed. So the court agreed with me that contacting the doctors was a necessary step in determining if an eviction action would be required. Therefore, we satisfied the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. The conduct arose from a protected activity. As to the likelihood of success prong of the analysis, a claim for invasion of privacy requires a showing of a serious invasion of a privacy interest. I had argued that since the attorney never asked the nature of the disability, but rather only asked if the AC units were required for whatever condition she had, there was no serious invasion. The court agreed and granted our anti-slap motion on the claim of invasion of privacy against the attorney. But remember Verizon versus COVAD. Citing to that case, the court ruled that the tenant could amend her claim. However, her counsel elected not to amend, so that claim is gone, and I successfully extracted the attorney from the action. 
So there you have a nice summary of the history and applicability of anti-slap motions in federal court. The primary takeaway is that you can only bring an anti-slap motion in a diversity jurisdiction case or a federal question case with supplemental state claims. And that you need to take a hard look at the cost-benefit analysis because an anti-slap motion in federal court won't stop discovery and plaintiff may be given leave to amend. But in federal court, the mandatory attorney fee provision still applies, so that's good news. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. In the next episode, episode 19, I'm going to get away from my own cases and discuss what I perceive to be the five most interesting anti-slap cases so far in 2016. Then my tentative plan for the next two episodes is to devote an episode to abuse of process cases. I see so many attorneys get in trouble when they include a claim for abuse of process and an episode on attorney fee motions following an anti-slap motion. So be sure to tune in for those. Speaking of attorney fees, as I've mentioned here, I'm frequently retained as an expert to opine on fee applications following successful anti-slap motions. Sometimes I'm hired to associate in and fight the fee application. Other times I just act as an expert and provide a declaration setting forth my opinion on the fees requested. As of the time of this podcast, my record remains perfect. I've always managed to get the fees reduced, sometimes significantly so. But a few weeks ago, I had an entertaining case in a distant county. The standard for any expert testimony is whether it will assist the court. The defense counsel, who had prevailed on the anti-slap motion, like so many do, submitted a greatly inflated fee application. The application included work that had nothing to do with the anti-slap motion. But it was a well-crafted fee application supported by surveys to show that the hourly rates were within local standards and citing to other cases that had requested outrageous attorney fees for anti-slap motions to attempt to justify this equally, in my opinion, outrageous request. So I was retained and I audited the bill and submitted my declaration suggesting that the application should be greatly reduced, the fees should be reduced. And in his reply, defense counsel filed a paragraph-by-paragraph objection to my entire declaration, basically just saying that the court did not need testimony from an expert when it comes to attorney's fees, which is kind of silly when you think about it. I mean, you offered surveys and analogized to other fee applications to support the fees you're requesting. How is it not helpful to the court for me to explain why those surveys don't apply and how those other fee applications involved appeals while yours didn't? But anyway, the judge was confronted with having to rule on all of the objections to my declaration. So in issuing his ruling, the judge simply stated that he was not going to consider my declaration. He referred to me as an anti-slap expert, which I, I really appreciated. But he said that he was able to determine the appropriate fees without my testimony. Okay, so by announcing that he would not consider my declaration, he avoided having to rule on the evidentiary objections. But then he took quotes directly from my declaration, adopted my reasoning for why the fees should be reduced, and ultimately reduced the fees by $20,000. I thought that was a pretty clever way not to consider my declaration. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.